0: Father, these written words in front of us, given by you through your holy prophets and apostles, kept for us through the ages by faithful men and women, who in some cases then and even today give their lives because of the precious words and truth in those words that are communicated there. And so we ask you now to help us to hear your voice, as you put it, our Lord Jesus, that we would listen with attentiveness, that we would see the preciousness of all that you have given to us in this written revelation, that you would accomplish your work through the passage that we'll look at, and do in us everything that you designed for it to do. Help us together to listen, to adore Christ and to have our strength faith, faith, strength, faith strengthened to live for you and your honor and glory in this world. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. We'll go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 31. Now, I know that's a large chunk, and you're wondering, how in the world is he going to do verses 9 through 31 and us not be here till midnight? I don't know if I could get you to stay that long anyway, but... We are going to attempt to do that by looking at it very broadly, because we want to see one large point uh, in Paul's revelation here in the book of Romans. Now as we've seen, been con- or been considering the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ, in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly we stopped in Matthew, looking at Christ's particular suffering on the cross at the end, those final three hours, at the end of which he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so that seems like a good place to pause, to consider the cross of Christ in a fuller glory, in a fuller sense. Now, there's many things that we could look at, and that could actually be a series that goes on and on and forever and ever for the rest of our time uh, here on this earth. But we're going to try to summarize that in just a few areas. So two weeks ago, we looked particularly at the cross of Christ as it was seen To be, through the eyes of God, as expressed even by Jesus in John chapter 12, to be a demonstration of God's glory. To be a demonstration of God's glory. Outside of anything that man could conceive, God conceived, determined, and accomplished to reveal His glory through the suffering of His Son. But not that it ends in suffering, through that suffering that would end in death, but then ultimately in His resurrection, in His defeat of death, in his accomplishment of everything that's necessary for our redemption. But the point of that sermon was particularly to understand that the glory of God is uniquely and fully and completely revealed in the cross of Christ. So when we see the cross, we see the glory of God as he has determined to reveal it, as he himself designed and determined to reveal it to not only us, but all of the angelic and spiritual realm. Which he mentions even in Ephesians chapter 3. So this morning there's just one another aspect that I want to look at. And next week we'll look at uh, the love of God as it's revealed in the cross. But this morning I want to look at uh, in Romans 3 the justice and grace of God that is revealed in the cross. The justice and the grace of God. And of course we've touched on these things previously. But we want to look at it a bit more completely uh, here this morning in Romans chapter 3. So... Read with me, if you will. It's a little bit of a longer passage, I understand. But read with me from verses 9 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 31. And then we're going to attempt to go through that with a a little bit closer look. Beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written... There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving, and the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Go back up to verse 9 and let's just consider our first point here, namely this. God's testimony of man's condition of sin. God's testimony of man's condition of sin. And this then is a snapshot from God's perspective of the true spiritual condition of all men. If we want to know what does God, what do we look like? What does humanity look like from God's perspective? If we could say it this way, if he were to look down and as he does from his throne in heaven, what does he see? What does he see? Paul opens that up for us here in these verses. This is the condition of all men. They are under condemnation because they have within themselves a nature of sin and of rebellion against their creator. And so this is what Paul directs our attention to here. And I would just make a note. And obviously, we're going to have to look at this very broadly, but I want to make one note here. It's an apologetic note in a way it's a defense of scripture. One of the great truths of Scripture that we constantly are confronted with is that Scripture gives an accurate view of the way that things are. We're not like in some Eastern religion where we just have some fantastical views that don't connect with reality, that you can just make up some of them, reincarnation or whatever it might be. We don't have any kind of spiritualist view or kind of a general spirituality where everybody's good and so on and so forth. Scripture gives us an accurate account of the way that things are. We read Scripture and we go, yes, that is what I see within myself. That is what I see around me in the world in which I live, that Scripture claims God created. And I understand it. And it is true. And that is the case here in this description of all men. It is not a mystery to us who know Christ... At least you know his word, to know why things are the way that they are in this world. Why men do the terrible things that they do in this world. It is because, as Paul says here, all are under sin. All are under sin. Now let's just look briefly at the way that he describes it. The characteristics of man in this fallen condition. And again, just very briefly... And notice, though, first, though, that this is a summary of everything that Paul has been saying, a case that he's really been building since verse 18 in chapter 1, where he says the verse you're familiar with, the wrath of God abides on all men, the unrighteousness of men, the ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now Paul has been sustaining that argument and here in a magnificent and a comprehensive way he brings it all together to show why both Jews who have the law are condemned by the law and Greeks who do not have the law but have the law of a conscience within them are all guilty before God. And so he gives the characteristics of it. And you'll notice at first... That all of these are Old Testament quotations. In other words, this isn't some new revelation. This is the testimony of God from the beginning. This is, this is who man is. And as it was true in the Old Testament, so it is true now. And it is true of all men until his kingdom comes. If you look at the first three verses, we could maybe summarize that as a general statement about the total depravity of man or the comprehensive sinfulness of man he says there is none righteous not even one that is a comprehensive statement if he were to say that alone it would be enough for the doctrine of understanding that man is utterly completely and fully fallen in their sin and they have no ability to correct themselves and to right themselves before god One who is unrighteous cannot make themselves righteous. It's an impossibility because you can never get rid of the unrighteousness. It is a stain that cannot be scrubbed or worked away. And so that is a summary statement, a comprehensive statement. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And notice he repeats that again and again so that we would know there are no exceptions. Now when we say that man is comprehensively sinful, totally depraved, as maybe some of us have learned it, it can be described in many ways. But to speak of the completeness and the comprehensiveness of man's fallenness does not mean, of course, that man is as bad as they could be every individual Some people are relatively better than others, right? I would trust and I don't fear from any of you that you would get angry at me and want to kill me. That's not true of everybody. Some would. They would just assume, take your life and do so violently. There is a certain assumption or a knowledge that not everybody is as bad as they can be, but that is not what is being said to say that they are comprehensively bad. It is simply to say this, That man is in every part of who he is, in all of his constitution, in all of his nature as a human being, there is no part of his being that is not tainted or corrupted at some level by sin and the effect of sin within them. It is a comprehensive picture of the effects of sin on men. And it is the reason that all are rendered by God as guilty and justly so. He says here in verse 11 that there is none who understands. There is none who understands. Sin has affected the rationality of man. The ability of man to reason rightly from a right perception about the way that things are. And about who God is. Their reasoning is faulty. It's always going to lead them to wrong conclusions. And they are not going to understand and perceive inwardly and spiritually the truth of the way that things are. Because Things can only be understood as they are when God is understood as he is. When he's perceived rightly, then it shines light on everything else. And that's where spiritual knowledge begins. But man does not have that ability. And so they have no understanding ultimately or spiritual perception inwardly of who God actually is. So sin affects the understanding. It, affects the, uh, uh, it influences the affections And he says there in verse 11 as well, there is none who seeks for God, who seeks for God. That is to say, we could probably put that under different categories, but it is to say at least this, that there is within man, there is no desire within man, there is no compulsion within man to truly know God as he is and as he's revealed himself. Affections are perverted and they're always going to stop when left to ourselves They're always going to be made or influenced to pursue something other than God. Pleasure, knowledge, vanity, and something other than God. No man seeks for God. That, of course, does not mean that man is not religious. That's not at all what he's saying. He's already made that clear, of course, in chapter 1. Man is a very religious people. A very worshipful people. We're hardwired for worship. It's being part of made in the image of God. It is to say, however that that worship is always fixed on an image of God that is not right and true. It is a false image of God. And so man loves to worship a false image of God, which he says in verse 25 of chapter 1, is more in the image and likeness of the creature rather than the creator. So man is very religious. They just worship that which is not God, and that is the problem. They worship something else. Ultimately, they worship their own ideas, their own vanity, and their own desires. And so it corrupts the affections. It also corrupts the will. He says in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. I dare to say that is not a message that would be well received in our day in most churches. And I would dare to say it's not a message that would be received well at any age, ultimately, apart from a work of God. In the heart. Consider what he says here. All have turned aside. And I put this under the will. Simply because to turn aside. Is to say to turn away from God. And to go your own way. It is to make those decisions. To seek and to do. Whatever is according to your own desire. And not according to God's desire. And to God's will. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And that. Is a really humbling word isn't it useless the idea is even of like milk that has gone bad and soured and is good only to be discarded only to be thrown out to get rid of the putrid smell it can't be drunk it's good for no good thing and that is the condition of man from God's perspective and it is so because man in this condition of sin and of their own have no ability to bring glory to God And to work God's purposes and God's will in this earth. Man has not the ability to do that in and of themselves. So, from God's perspective and for God's purposes, who created man to glorify him on the earth, to do his will, to demonstrate his character and bring him glory in all of his creation, man um, in sin is completely unable to do that, has completely lost that ability. So, according to the purpose of God, they are useless. There's no good thing. There's no good thing in them that enables them to do God's will. And so God sees them as useless for his purposes in this world. And there is none who does good. There is not even one. There's not even one. And again, we would just note that doesn't mean that there's not a relative good in terms of humanity. But there is nothing that a fallen creature corrupted by sin can do that is morally good and spiritually good before God because it always has a corrupting influence as a part of it. And it comes from one who in their base nature is corrupted by sin and so what can flow out of that is only going to be corrupted by that sin. And so therefore they cannot do anything that is spiritually good, morally good and acceptable for, before God on its own. Now, the rest of this passage, which we won't have time to look at, I've got to hurry, is simply, it describes that. Their throat is an open grave. Man's mouth is full of all kind of corruption and expressions of their sin, full of cursing and bitterness. Man is violent. And the summary of it all is really in verse 18, of course, is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that then gets down to the very heart of it, to the very soul of man. There is nothing within man in an unregenerate state, in a natural state, that fears God. There's nothing in man that gives, has reverence for God. There's nothing in man that desires to trust God and desires to obey God and to do His will on this earth. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of consequences There's no fear of being found out and held accountable for personal sin. There simply is no fear before God. And so they live according to whatever their desires dictate. Whether it be whatever their understanding dictates, whatever their affections dictate, they do it. Why? Because they do not fear God. And that is then the condition of man. And Paul is setting a context here. And our point this morning is to see that this context is the environment or the context in which we have to understand the cross of Christ. This is the context in which we understand his death and his resurrection and the glory of God that is revealed in it. Just to sum this up, he says in verses 19 through 20 that because of this condition of man, all are rightly and justly, get this, fairly condemned by God. In other words, it is fair for God to execute justice on men. Whenever he takes a life, whenever he chooses to display his judgment on this earth, he is totally right to do so. The amazement is that God does not do that more often to us. That's the surprise. We should not be surprised when he executes judgment. We should be amazed that he is so patient and long-suffering. Let's just read the verses. He says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law then, as it's been well said, is a mirror that reflects back to man his true condition when he compares himself to, to it. Man then can see this is what God's requires. This is what holiness would look like. And when I compare myself to that, what I see is deficiency. I see a failure to do that. I, in fact, see just the opposite. I see transgressions in my life where I have stepped over the bounds of holiness and committed sin. And the law reflects that to us. It helps us to see ourselves as we actually are. And in Paul's argument here, And in God's revelation to us, each of us in this room and to man, it is his justification, his defense, if you will, his declaration of why he is just and why man is unable to change that situation on their own. And I want to make just one brief note here before we get to the main part. And that's this. To say then that all are accountable to God And that all are condemned does not mean to say that all feel accountable or feel condemned. And that actually is a very important point. It is to say that legally, before God, in terms of his requirement, all have broken his law, they have offended him, they have transgressed his holiness, they have displayed rebellion, they have refused to believe his revelation either in creation, conscience, or his son, and therefore they are accountable and they are guilty before God. It doesn't mean that they feel guilty, it means that man is guilty. And that's very, very important. Because many, in matter of fact, we would say all, in terms of a right biblical sense, do not really and truly feel the guilt of their sin. And that's, again, because there is no fear of God before their eyes, and so there is no sense of the seriousness of their condition. Let me read to you just one verse. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Don't don't turn there. You'd probably get there faster than I am. But verse 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. He says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. That is something that's repeated in other places in Scripture. In the book of Romans, our context, he says this in chapter 2, verse 4. Just listen. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So in other words... Not only does man not feel guilty of their own, though they are, they see the patience of God is actually perverted to mean, in some people's mind, a condoning of their sin. A sense of justification for their feeling no worry before God. Because, in fact, they go on living without fear of Him and without understanding of what the future holds. So that is the condition of man. That's the condition of man. That is the way that God sees him condemned, full of guilt, sin, and worthy of condemnation. But here's the point. Here's where we're leading. That's the context for verse 21 through 31. Notice next, though, that in that condition, in man's condition of sin, God has provided justice and righteousness in Jesus Christ. He's provided justice and righteousness in Jesus Christ. Now, let's just consider this. And again, obviously not in a lot of detail, but broadly, let's understand what Paul is saying here as we meditate, really, just on the cross of Christ. Note first here that God witnesses to his own righteousness in Jesus Christ. And really, that would look at verses 21 through 24. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed... By the law and the prophets. Notice that he says here, apart from the law. Apart from the law. That is, apart from anything that the law could accomplish in man, God has provided a righteousness that is other than that. That is other than that. There is no righteousness that could come before God through the law. That's the point. It could only give the knowledge of sin... But this is a righteousness that is of God. It's God's righteousness, and it is something that comes from him. And that is the key point throughout here, throughout all of the gospel, but particularly here. It implies, as one has said this, that in justification there is no contribution, preparatory, accessory, or subsidiary that is given by the works of the law. Which is simply to say this. There's nothing that the law can do that can prepare someone to receive the grace of God outside of showing them their need. There's nothing that the law can do to make the soul ready outside of showing it its own condemnation and guilt. So that it would be prepared to rightly receive God's work in Christ. So if we look only in terms of what we are to do, there is only hopelessness. There's only hopelessness. But this is a word of hope. This is a word of hope. It is a word that says that there is a righteousness that you can have, but it can't come from you, essentially. It comes from God. It's a righteousness of God. It's something that He must provide for you. It is a part from the law. And it is something that has now been manifested. And this is tremendously good news. Tremendously good news. Because it says that there is something available to us who are guilty that God provides that meets our greatest need, which is righteousness, which is forgiveness of sin. Now, he says it's been witnessed to by the law, and the prophets, which is simply to say that all of the Old Testament scriptures up to this point have borne witness to this righteousness of God that he was going to provide. He was going to provide. The Old Testament saint knew that there was nothing that was in the law that ultimately was the fullness of ...of the grounds of their salvation. They knew that. It was always only when their obedience to the law... ...an expression of their faith in God. They knew well and would have agreed... ...an Old Testament saint with Isaiah 64, 6... ...that said, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In other words, nothing we can do of ourselves... ...can atone or make up for or cleanse us from our sin. Hebrews 10.4, which reflects statements many times in the Old Testament, says this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But even more gloriously, it's the passage that we've looked at many times over and over. Isaiah 53 says this. But by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So a spiritually alive Old Testament saint understood that righteousness was never to come from the law. It was to come from faith and it would ultimately be accomplished by what God would do in Isaiah 53 through this servant of whom alone it could be said that he is the righteous one. And one of the main points here is simply for Paul to say that this isn't something new. It's not a new righteousness. It's not a different kind of righteousness. But he says, and his point is, it is a righteousness that is fully embodied in the person of Christ. Look at what he says. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, there is no distinction. It is a perfect righteousness of God required of men, made a reality in the person of Jesus Christ. It's very similar in some ways to what Jesus said when he said he did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to what? To fulfill it. To fulfill it. To be everything that the law and the prophets anticipated is realized in its perfection in the person of Jesus Christ. It is in him the substance of the new covenant that they hoped for. We won't... Look at it, but Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. It was a cleansing that was to come. It was a kingdom of righteousness that was to come with the appearance of the righteous one. And here he says it is a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to have to go very quickly here, but let's just get the big idea of what Paul is saying. So what he's saying here, again, is that everything that God requires, everything that marks the righteousness, the perfection of God, and to say the righteousness of God would, maybe one way to think of it is this, to say that everything that conforms to who God is, everything that is equal in moral holiness, in purity, equal to God, is what is righteous, is what is righteous. It is what conforms to his character, to his nature, to his person. And that is exactly what was provided for man in the person of Jesus Christ apart from the law. Everything that God requires, everything that he is, everything that should be expressed in man but cannot be was in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of God that is through faith. It is a righteousness of God that is through faith, apart from the works of the law. And he says here in verse 23, or look what he says there in verse 22. Here he's making a point to the Jews that there is no distinction. In other words, it's a righteousness available to all, salvation available to all. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now what does he mean by that? Well, again, we don't have time for details. There's a variety of ways that that has been explained. Is it a glory that is future? Is it a glory that God gives? It is a glory in man that fails or something in man that fails to be conformed to God's glory in terms of obedience and righteousness. There's a variety of ways it's been understood. I would understand it at this point to be the glory that man owes to God. In other words, that man is to reflect God's glory in this world, but they have fallen short of that because of sin, because of their corruption. They do not meet that standard and requirement of God, and therefore they're all guilty, as he's just explained, and therefore they all need a Savior in the same way. Whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whatever it is, all need to receive of God's redemption. Now, I want to make a point that I'm going to mention here and then I'm going to end with later, but I want to make that here at least uh, briefly, and that's this. The emphasis, then, on this passage is not on man's worthiness to be saved. The emphasis in all of this is to show how God has glorified himself in providing salvation for men, how he has upheld his glory, how he has displayed his glory to those who do not deserve it. You know, in some churches, they change the, the words to amazing grace. Did you know that? You know, what are we sing: Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Uh, in many churches, it would not be uncommon to hear that saved someone like me. That saved someone like me. The idea of our wretchedness is simply more than many can handle. But that is exactly the case here. That is exactly the case here. All have sinned and therefore all need the same redemption. Look at what he says and it's something that's being provided, has been provided in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And this is the marvel of the gospel. This is the marvel of the gospel, the grace of God in Christ. We who are unrighteous are counted as righteous in Jesus Christ. That word you may know, that's translated either "righteous or "just" or "made righteous" or "justified it's the same root word. It depends on the way that it's being used, is why the translators have done this. You could say, this isn't really a word, but being righteous, being rightified," or however you would want to say it. but being justified and this is a very important term, a very important, a very important reality here that we have in Christ, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to make a note here, and this is very important, is that when he says here, being justified as a gift by his grace, that actually is in the present tense, It is being justified as a gift by his grace. But what he is referring to here is not a process, but a present state that has been declared true about someone a present state that has been declared to be true about someone. He's not saying being justified in terms of it's a process that's happening, but it's a state that someone is in through faith in Christ. And let me make just even a few notes to help you there. One is because this righteousness is in Christ, it's not in ourselves. That person is not being justified By works of the law or something that they're doing. It is something that is declared of them because of Christ. So it's a righteousness that's completely apart from works and only through faith. It is a present righteousness that makes us acceptable to God. And yet as Romans and all of scripture makes clear. There is the reality of sin that is still within man. But this is a condition of being declared or thought of or treated as righteous by God. It is a gift of his grace. It is a present condition for those who have faith in Christ. They have been justified. They've been justified. Another reason is that it's in a passive voice. Now that's kind of technical. I don't like saying this stuff. But it just means something this. It's not something that that person is doing or that you are doing. It's something that God has done and that God has declared about that person. It's a subtle condition, not a developing one. It's a righteousness that is in every way something that God has accomplished and gives in the person of Christ. Now there's so much more to say about that. But let us just note this. That God has provided in Christ the way and the only way for a man who is unrighteous, a person who is unrighteous to be seen as righteous and accepted as righteous by God. As accepted into his presence. He says it is a gift of his grace. Or a gift by his grace. We who deserve condemnation. Can be counted righteous. That's the point here. And so at every point. What God is doing here is this. In one sense he's pointing to Christ. And we'll look at that next. But he's doing a second point. That these have to go together. Is he is removing from Man, even the smallest hope that we can contribute anything to salvation. That's his point, is he's one of his points. He's removing even the smallest hope that we can contribute anything to salvation, that we have any resource within ourselves to be acceptable to God. Righteousness, justification, is 100 percent provided by God in Christ. It is utterly and distinctly and completely apart. ...from human effort. That's the point. It's one of the points. It's utterly apart from human effort. Have you ever thought... ...why the idea of grace... ...is so offensive to man? And isn't that wonderful? As Christians we live and we delight... ...and we glory in the grace of God... ...in Christ. It's a a gift that's freely given. But to understand grace... ...is to understand... ...our corruption... And how deeply sinful and guilty we are. And utterly helpless that we are to contribute. That's his point. And so for any who would think that in some way I'm contributing, preparing my heart. We have to reconcile how you can be useless, unrighteous, not able to do good. And say that anything you do could contribute to salvation. It's an impossibility. And that is the point here. It is a redemption. It's something that God provided 100% apart from human effort that He provided in His Son for His own glory. And this is grace. This is grace. Grace is sometimes described... Have you heard it this way? Grace is sometimes described as getting what you don't deserve. And that's true. But I think a better definition that I have read and I think comports with Scripture is this it is receiving god's goodness or god giving his goodness to those who deserve wrath it's almost too benign to say it's getting something i don't deserve but it's something totally different which is paul's point here is to say no i do deserve something what i deserve is wrath what i've gotten is exactly the opposite for the one who believes grace and forgiveness and i've received it all in christ he says through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The greatest wonder of all is the means through which God has given this grace in his own son, in his own death, in his own resurrection. The idea of redemption includes that of a price being paid. That there is a cost for freedom. There is a cost for forgiveness. And here it is a cost for redemption that is paid By Jesus Christ. Again, it is to say that everything that was necessary for redemption, everything that was necessary to complete for man and on their behalf, the righteousness of God is found not in man, but is found only in Christ. That's the point. It's not found in man. It cannot be found in man. It can only be found in Christ. No sacrifice, no religion, no penance, no human effort at all can be the source of this redemption. It's only in Christ. It's only in Christ. And the cost of that redemption was the suffering of the curse of the law. And so that's the wonder of it. And that's what he's going to show us in verse 25. In verse 25. It's in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith... This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This righteousness of God, this forgiveness of God, this redemption of God is not simply because God is a nice God. That he's just a really big cosmic teddy bear who doesn't really want harm to come to anyone. An old grandfatherly man in the sky who really has only benevolence in his heart, even to his weight, uh, his erring children, and wants to just gather them in and will do that with no real ultimate cost for their sin. That's the picture of God that is popular, of course, because it's non-condemnatory because it's accepting, because it's comfortable. But in God, forgiveness is real, grace is real, but it is a holy grace. It is a grace that has come at the cost of redemption. And it is a grace that has come, and this is the important point here, that upholds God's righteous and holy nature. In other words, God can't, nor could He, nor has He, simply decided for some to not hold their sin against them because he has kind feelings towards them and for others to hold their sin against them. There's no justice in that. If that's the view of God that someone has, then there is no moral order in the universe. There is ultimately no justice. There is ultimately no accountability for sin. You have a willy-nilly God. You have a willy-nilly God, much like the God of Islam or others. There's no atonement for sin. There's no atonement for sin. And if God were not to uphold his justice at all cost, then that would be a horrifying thought. As I mentioned, there would be no moral fabric to the universe, and it would not be the God of the Bible. And it would make a mockery of God's own revelation of himself, where he says that his eyes in Habakkuk 13 are too pure to approve evil. Too pure to approve evil. If that is true of God, then that must mean that every sin, every sin must receive its just reward, its just recompense, its just punishment. God is perfectly holy. He hates sin, He abhors sin, He hates evil, and will punish every sin ever committed on this earth since the garden not the slightest unholy thought, word, or action will go without receiving its just penalty for the believing and for the unbelieving. Otherwise, God would not be just. His character character would be chargeable with wrong and unfairness. So that's important to understand. That God, in order for him to redeem and what he actually did do in Christ was accomplish both things. He upheld his justice. He upheld his holy nature. He upheld his holy standard of his law, while at the same time providing grace and forgiveness for sinners in his Son. And there is a wisdom and a glory that is far beyond the comprehension of fallen man and utterly distinct from every system of worship that's ever been devised by man. You know this well. It's a great summary. That there is only the religion of the human achievement that we contribute and of divine accomplishment, which is the gospel. That God has done everything in Christ. And it is a message that is foolishness to the intellectual elite, to the Greeks, represented by the Greeks in 1 Corinthians 18, and is a stumbling block to the religious person. If you want to know in any conversation... With somebody who is particularly of a cult or another religion particularly that goes under the guise of Christianity, there are two areas that you need to understand and that you can address. One is the nature of God in Christ, that he is a father and the son and the spirit. And number two is the work of Christ. Every other religion of man, every default position is to add works to the gospel in some fashion and in some form. That's why false teachers are so effective to the unregenerate mind because it appeals to the unregenerate mind that you can contribute something. That there's something you do. But that is exactly the opposite of the gospel. Exactly the opposite. And so let's notice this last thing. And this really is the main point. And we're going to do it in like three minutes. It's this. It is that God upholds His own glory supremely In his provision of grace. He upholds his own glory. Supremely in his provision of grace. Look at what he says. At the verse 26. For the demonstration of his righteousness. At the present time. So that he would be just. And the justifier of the one. Who has faith in Jesus. And he does this through Christ. Whom he displayed publicly as a propitiation now the nasb has displayed publicly the esv as whom god put forward which is really more of a literal translation of the word but both of them communicate the same idea and that is this that christ was put forward for all to see for all to see it's like what paul said in acts 26 26 where he said to the roman ruler god has not done these things in a corner He's not done it in secret. He's done it for all to see. You're well aware of these events and that's what God did in Christ. He displayed him for all to see and he displayed in him a satisfaction for the righteousness of God. Oh, it's so hard to go quickly here, but propitiation has this basic idea. Has this basic idea. Fully satisfying God's wrath in a way that averts it from those who deserve it. In other words, we as sinners deserve that wrath. God has absorbed that wrath or Christ absorbed that wrath in himself so that it could be removed from us. So that it could be removed from us. He turns it away. It's very, it connects with, that word actually in the Old Testament uh, has a corollary to the mercy seat in the temple of God. The mercy seat. The blood was put on the mercy seat. And by the sacrifice of the blood and the mercy seat, the confession of sins of the nation on the animal that was sacrificed on the day of atonement, it was God's averting of His wrath, averting of the judgment that the nation deserves as a sinful people so that they might instead receive the covenant blessings of God. And so here, that is ultimately what Christ accomplished not as a picture, but as a substance of God's saving grace and it is there is no greater display of the perfect justice and holiness of god than the cross there's no greater declaration that god will judge every sin than at the cross there's no greater display of grace offered to sinner than in the perfect son of god who satisfied divine justice in the place of sinners and to reject christ is to crucify him openly again Hebrews 6.6. 6. To reject this sacrifice then means there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. We'll note next week how it displays the love of God. But let me add this one point, which is really, really important. Forgiveness is something that we should not expect. It's something that's surprising. It's amazing. The idea that God offers forgiveness in his Son is something that is amazing. It's wonderful. Often men have the idea that either God views sin lightly or that there's such an emphasis on the forgiveness and love of God without a right doctrine of His holiness in man's sin that it's just assumed that God will forgive. Listen to this one ancient uh, or old uh, empress of Russia. Her name was Catherine. She said this, I shall be an autocrat, that is my trade, and the good Lord will forgive me, that is His. Another poet said this, I like to commit crimes... God likes to forgive them. Really, the world is admirably admirably arranged. And that's the attitude of many. God's a forgiving God. Therefore, my sin is of no real and ultimate consequence. But that's simply not what Paul is saying here and what God has revealed to us. One has better captured it like this. Unless we give a real content to the wrath of God, and unless we hold that men really deserve to have God visit them, on them, the painful consequences of their wrongdoing, we empty God's forgiveness of its meaning. And I would only add this, that we also remove from sinners the weight of their situation that would compel them to repentance. We remove from them that weight of their situation that would compel them to repentance. And if that weight of the situation is not held, then the sinner who's given this wrong perception of God is made to feel comfortable in their rebellion and is not compelled to repentance because it's simply the consequences of not repenting are not that great. There's one last point with that as we prepare for the table, and it's this God is supremely concerned with upholding his glory before men. Notice what he says to show his righteousness. His righteousness. This is a continual theme throughout the Old Testament. But this is the point. The gospel is not about how special and valuable man is. That is not what the gospel is about. It's not to say that man is so valuable, so wonderful, so precious in the sight of God, that God would even give his own son to redeem them. That's how the gospel is often presented But the gospel is not about how special and valuable you are or man is or I am. It is rather about the incredible grace of God. It's about the incredible grace of God. The gospel is first and foremost about God's display of his own glory and grace in providing a savior to miserable, wretched, and justly condemned people such as ourselves. It's not about how valuable and special you are, but how amazingly and profoundly gracious, kind, loving, and wise that God is. That's the point of the gospel. And if we get that wrong, which is a really subtle switch, then there's just a host of problems that come with that, that deceive men into a sleep, a spiritual sleep that's dangerous to their soul, and that robs God of his own glory in being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we marvel at his wisdom and we marvel at Christ's cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it is there that God has amazingly accomplished redemption for us. Well, We'll have the men come forward and we'll remember this sacrifice of Christ on our behalf in the Lord's Supper, which he has provided to us. And we come here with the attitude as the men are coming forward that Paul talks about here in verse 27. Where is the boasting? It is excluded. It is excluded. We are brought low, but God is exalted in the gospel. Father, I pray that as we come to your table, you would so fill our hearts so fill our hearts with the wonder of your son the lord jesus that you would so enable us to worship rightly to live rightly to delight in our abasement and your exaltation even as john said the baptist that he must increase but you must or he must decrease but you must increase may that be the continual pattern and direction of our lives as we marvel in your grace in your Son. And even now, as we remember that in taking these elements together, and we offer this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.